Welcome to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's begin. G'day all SF listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Social Fishing Podcast. Now this is episode 46 and I have to tell you this is a very passionate episode. There's a lot of true heart that comes out in this and I was lucky enough to sit down with Matt Hansen. Now for those of you who don't know who Matt is, he is an absolute legend when it comes to doing good in the world. Now he's based out of Dubbo, he owns a real estate business but on the fishing side of things, he loves his fishing, he loves the waters around him, the Macquarie River is the lifeblood and he's grown up fishing it and he just wants to give back and help and over the last decade or more, he has done so many things to contribute back to the river system, back to the community and back to fishing as a whole. Now him, and it's not just him, him and a group of people uh, started a organization called the IWRA, the Inland Waterways Rejuvenation Association and it was based in Dubbo, all about helping the Macquarie River, raising money to do rehabilitation of habitat, to stock fish, to add snags back to the waterway and the story and how it all started is really cool to hear. And then he also is one of the organizers, this group started the Burundong Classic. So the massive Burundong Classic uh, out at Burundong near Dubbo, was all. he was one of the brains behind starting this and the reason behind starting the competition was for a great cause and we'll talk about that in this episode. He's also a part of Ozfish. He sits on the board of Ozfish as a volunteer. Uh, we talk about Ozfish and what they do and we just talk about impacts and things affecting our native fish and the things that are in their way. Now, most of the time we think about fishing, we look at how we can catch fish, all sorts of different things about, you know, techniques and things like that. A lot of the time we don't take a back seat and sort of look at the big picture about, you know, these fish, we need to look after them. And we do, we, we think about the sort of things at the forefront of our, of what we're doing and think, you know, we've got to handle them correctly, you know, use certain hooks to look after them, we've got legal sizes and, you know, returning fish, catch and release. There's all those things which we all sort of consciously think about and it is great. But there are other things out there that have a massive impact impact on our native fish and that is what we talk about in this episode. I highly recommend you listen to the entire episode with Matt. If you love chasing native fish, if you have a passion for cod, for golden perch and you want to be able to catch them and catch them for the rest of your life and for your kids and for future generations, please listen to what we talk about in this episode. Listen to the entire thing and if it touches you and if it means something to you, there are things you can do about it and we talk about that in the episode. But please share this episode as well. If you listen to this episode and you connect with the episode and you believe what Matt is talking about, please share the message. This, I don't want you to share this for sharing social fishing podcasts. I want you to share this for the words that Matt is talking about and that is exactly why I got him on this episode. The message that he has, I want everyone to hear. Everyone who loves chasing cod, freshwater fish needs to listen to this episode. Please share it. Share it on any social media page you have. Put it on Facebook, say, people, everyone, you need to listen to this. 
please get everyone listening to this so that we can make change and try and make a better future for our fisheries. It's very important and I know so many people who have no idea about this stuff and hopefully, hopefully with this platform, with this podcast, we can reach more people and just have a tiny, tiny little impact in moving forward. So without further ado, guys, let's jump in and talk with Matt Hansen about the impacts facing our native fisheries. Matt, first of all, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited for this episode and I know you have a super busy schedule. Um, so, thanks for taking a bit of time out of your day. So, welcome. And first of all, we briefly met, oh, how many years ago was it at that Ozfish uh, Summit at Burrandong? Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely, mate. On the, the lawns overlooking Lake Burrandong where we got all those fishing clubs together to, to talk about how we could... Uh, better the fishing. I'm a big fan of, of social fishing and, and what you guys do. So no, look, thanks for having me, mate. It's uh, it's a privilege to be here and to chat with you, Reese. I really, really appreciate you coming on. But uh, yeah, thanks for that. Do you remember Burundong, how full it was? That was probably at its fullest before it took that massive decline in sort of water height. I think it was 2016 or just after oh. she filled up and it was really full. Um, and that would have been the last time it was that full. And now it's filling back up. It's It's been a tough few years for Burundong, hasn't it? It has, mate. We've just had to pull the pin on our third annual fishing competition out here, two in a row for drought, and then one off the back of that due to the uh, to the pandemic. The old Rona got us this time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, look, it has been a turbulent time out here, uh, you know, in central western New South Wales, the, the gateway to the bush. Um, but it's just so fantastic to see the headers going around. I took my kids out yabbying today. Did you? And, um, yeah, we, we went out and, and put a few yabby pots in and the headers going around the paddocks ripping off these beautiful wheat crops. It's just something that we haven't seen out here, Reese. It, it has been the drought from hell, uh, yeah. fish, re- fish rescues and, um, you know, cancelled fishing competitions and, and dead fish in their hundreds of thousands. So it, it's been a really turbulent time, mate. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So, do you know? Do you remember the the millennial drought? And like, it obviously went on for longer. But do you have any comparison about this one that was only like a few short years? Was it just? Do you remember the millennial drought? And in mm. comparison to this, because it was two thousand two thousand ten, um, mm. and I've heard that this drought was so much worse, but it was shorter. But I imagine it's just because if you have a period with with no rain, whereas there probably was a little bit of rain back then. Um, mm. I've heard that this one was worse. I just thought it was, yeah. mate. It was, and look, record low inflows, so record low amounts of water in the catchment. It was, it was, you know, intense. It was just drought, and it was game on. You know, Mother Nature yeah. was absolutely backhanding us in the chops, and it was really, really nasty conditions. Like out here, it was dust storms of an afternoon, no vegetation on the ground. And really, really bad in-stream water qualities for fish. Uh, we saw a, a cease-to-flow event in the um, the lower regulated Macquarie, yeah, which meant bad. that water basically wasn't going to flow down the Macquarie River uh, from Warren, and that that you know portion of river became um, an unfed series of, of interlinked holes. Yeah. And we got the call up from from fisheries. Um, to go and do something about it and basically go and 
and get a, a an insurance population of fish. So we had the fisheries electrofishing guys out there. We had about 30 volunteers from Inland Waterways Ausfish. And, mate, these boys got out there in the mud um, for a week and they used electrofishing, haul netting, line fishing in the holes where you still could. Yep. And they, they got amazing captures of, you know, they got 30 pairs of Murray cod up to about a metre 10 out of there and they went to the Narendra Fisheries Centre. Yep. And they, they also got um, an insurance population of golden perch out of there. Yep. And, and they went to Narendra as well just so that, you know, if all was lost... Um, we would have some some brood stock from the right genetics to breed from, yeah. And um, we, in the end, like there was just some such committed guys, like you know Kenny Smith and Cole Gordon and um, you know Warwick Osborne and, and Safala CAS and all these guys who rallied around the guys from Dubbo and the farmers from Warren and the the staff from Fisheries. In the end, after about three attempts, they. They rescued over 700 natives. The wow. Yeah, the insurance population went to the fisheries centre and then the boys just started shuttling fish about 60 k's back upstream in these pods that we made. Yeah. So we bought um, oh, seven or 8,000 litre IBCs, fitted them with um, oxygenation equipment and, you know, an air stone in the bottom and put them all on trailers and ratchet strapped them down and we got a pump. And, um, yeah, we just started ferrying fish back upstream and, and letting them go above a weir in Warren, which was the next sort of stable water source for these fish to survive. But, um, yeah, mate, a lot of credit to, to the boys for, you know, getting up to literally up to their armpits in yeah. mud and, and rescuing these fish. And, um, mate, at the end of it all, here we are talking to you 12 months later, 11, uh, 12, yeah, 13 months later. And um, we're about to, to, to see, you know, tens of thousands of um, fingerlings come back from those fish that were rescued, which is, is going to be, um, you know, a great day, mate, to see the progeny of, of the rescued fish come back because it did go upside down there, mate. The, the first bit of water that, that went down through that country killed hundreds of thousands of fish. It was a, a toxic blackwater event. Um, because and, and the, the rain straight after the drought. That yeah, yeah. That, that first water, mate, um, turned that whole system upside down. We it was lucky we got in there when we did because, you know, we were we were planning for the worst and hoping for the best, but the worst did happen. And, um, yeah, there was Murray Cod, older than you, mate, down there to, that went upside down. Yeah. Um, in their tens of thousands, you know. It was, it was brutal to see what happened to that fishery. Um, but we got an insurance population. The finglings are on their way. And um, water management and uh, the way forward has, has certainly been a topic uh, hot on the nation's lips since that event and many others like Menindi, Reese. Yeah, yeah, because I've, I've got a couple of other questions for you, but this is one thing I wanted to talk about. Um, the same thing happened on the Darling pretty well, and the boys out there rescued a stack of fish as well, didn't they? Um, they did. Ozfish Sunraysia, mate, and New South Wales Fisheries again, yep. And then, so with the, so when you, for people who don't get it, or like it, even for me, I was kind of a little confused when I first heard it. You've got a river system that's dying; it has no water. Wouldn't you think? Can you explain why the first flush of rain didn't benefit the system? You'd think, you know, we've got water back; it's good. What actually caused the fish to die with that big hit of rain? Mate, it's 
it's basically it's like tipping a, a lawnmower catcher full of, of half rotten lawn clippings into your fish tank is the best analogy. Yep. It's it's that vegetation build up, it's water going across hot sand, it, it's crash dissolved oxygen levels and, and turbidity. Yep. Um you know, the the water here when we saw these fish kill events in Dubbo, like you know a terracotta pot that <laughs> that, that your mum plants petunias in? Yeah. The, the water was the colour of a brand new terracotta pot. It it was like you could walk across it. It, yeah. it was as thick. It looked like tomato soup grease. Wow. It, it was terrible, and you know that comes from no vegetation across millions of hectares of drought-affected regional New South Wales, and all this sediment and all this rain basically washing in like a like a gutter into a river that's just been clinging to life with no tucker in it no food in it and all yeah. this sediment and exposed country washes in at the same time and the fish just get so crooked mate they just roll it's it's yeah. a shocking thing to see and it's and it's just basically no oxygen so it just zaps the oxygen out of the water and then it just makes its way down river but then we get the same kind of rain event now after we've had six months of rain and that's actually good for the system isn't it because it's not it, you've got vegetation on the banks it is, mate. And look, you ask anybody from regional New South Wales out here about, you know, how our dust storms have have really settled down since we've got some vegetation back on the landscape. Yeah. And you know, like, you might as well not clean up. Like, you could pressure wash and hose down your back deck out here every single afternoon, and and two days later, another dust storm rolls in. And and you're back to square one. And yeah. it's the same for our aquatic environment. Um, yeah. You know that vegetation, you know, holding holding the land together, the reduced sediment pouring into the river when you do get a rain event, um, and the system, you know, working in harmony is is what we like to see. But yeah, that that drought from hell, mate. It was it was like you could walk across the river. There was that much dirt in it, mate. It was shocking. Yeah, it makes me makes me think that we where I'm based, I kind you kind of forget what's going on in other parts of the country. Like we went through the drought here too, but we didn't. Like we still had a little bit, you know, a little bit of vegetation here and there, and it, it makes you forget or not even realise how bad some spots were. Like considering your impoundment was pretty well empty, you had no flow. Um, yeah, it just it get, when you talk to someone like yourself, it, it brings it back to home that you know there's a lot of things going on out there that you don't realise. Um, yeah. And it's good now that you know things have changed, and as you said, those fish are coming back. So are they the fish that fisheries are they juveniles that fisheries have bred based on those fish that were rescued? Is that what the ones that are coming back you were talking about? Yeah, they are, mate. So um, basically, anything over about seventy centimetres the in the cod sort of 70 to 75 centimetres went in these uh, on the DPI um, fisheries truck and away they went down to Narendra and once they settled in and started feeding and and whatnot they got into the into the breeding cycle and and fisheries through a lot of hard work you know they, they have been working incredibly hard down there to to get our our stocking numbers up because yeah. basically you know the Murray Darling Basin has been through a torrid time um, but yeah, look, we, we got footage of, um, 
you know, those those Murray cod feeding down there, you know, taking full size chicken necks off the surface in their in their pond. Yep. Um, once they'd settled in, it was amazing to see, you know, them bounce back to life, fit and healthy. Yeah. And uh, and it won't be too far away that mate that um, no doubt we've got their their young coming back in their tens of thousands to to do some restocking in the waterways, which is great. Yeah. So those those big fish are they going to hold on to them for a few more seasons, or are they going to yeah. put them back? They're going to hold on to them. Yeah, yeah. they are. Look, not forever. Um, it's it's definitely um something that the locals and have been very passionate about is that those fish are returned to their to their breeding waters. Yep. Um, so they might do, I'm not sure, you know, four or five breeding cycles out of them yep. and, and really get, you know, multiple millions of juveniles from them um, and then return those broodstock to the waters, you know, once once they have basically uh, secured the insurance population, which is what we got them out for. Yep. Um, but ultimately, mate, they will end up, yeah, back in those in those holes where they were rescued from. And that's the go. That's the that's the good you know the good part of the story. You know, get them back and then get yeah. people catching them again. But so the the real the real boost for the fishery though is in those those juvenile fish. So can you tell me how long the Macquarie is from sort of the bottom of Barrandong out to where it ends? And did the whole system lose majority of the fish from your? sort of insight or do you reckon some survived or did that water go through the whole system? So the Macquarie, the, like the, the lower Macquarie, I'll talk about from Burundong downstream because you've also got the Macquarie that is above Lake yep. Burundong. But in my, my neck of the woods, you've got Lake Burundong, which is three and a half times the size of Sydney Harbour, built back in the 50s and 60s for um, water security for both irrigation and human consumptions needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but... In doing that, you know, the dam is certainly much needed for, for critical human needs and, and regional economics. But we've got about a 160-kilometre area that is thermally polluted by Burundong Dam. So when they release water from Burundong Dam, um, that water can be as cold as, you know, 10 and 12 degrees in the middle of summer. So mm. the science shows us that we've got basically about 160 kilometres as the river's twists and turns downstream for that water to normalise back to a temperature where it would be considered normal. So it's been Before a the dam was change. there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and then how much more of the river is there? At, Mate, I, I'd have to get a measurement a for you, but, you know, several hundreds of kilometres downstream where it runs into um, the Ramsar-listed Macquarie Marshes and then yep. it comes out the back of the Macquarie Marshes and it eventually flows into the Barwon, and where right. and then the Barwon will go on into the Darling. So yep. that's that's they're the veins of 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 the the Murray Darling Basin, the, the Macquarie, um, down and onto the Barwon Darling, and it has a number of tribes that flow into it as well. So upstream you've got the Bell, the Little, um, downstream more you've got the Taubrigar. Um, there's some quite significant inflows from. Uh, trips like the Coolbaggy Creek. Yep. But they're all veins that turn into, you know, the Macquarie River, which in turn go on downstream to feed the Macquarie Marshes and, and the Barwon Darling. And then the fish that you guys rescued in sort of, is it in sort of a, a big picture, is it sort of closer to the bottom of Burundong in that 160 kilometre affected area or is it further west? No, mate. It's it's that was that was downstream. So that was downstream of Warren. 
So you've got Burundong Dam, then about 160 kilometres of, of thermally polluted river um, where fish breeding is far more less likely to occur because of the temperatures. Yep. Then the, wa- the water uh, temperature normalises close to Narromine, which is another significant yep. regional centre about Oh, 40Ks from Dubbo, mm-hmm. um, and then down on from Narromine, you flow on to Warren, and then we were out the other side of Warren, and then before you met the Macquarie Marshes. Yeah, so okay. we were we were quite some distance downstream from Burundong Dam, Reese. And you saw fish kills, you saw fish kills in Dubbo, or there was fish kills in Dubbo, and then yep. further, yeah, so the system took a massive hit. Yeah, look at... Mate, it was it was weird. There was you know fish kills um, upstream in the Bell. Uh, there was there was fish kills upstream of Dubbo, uh, where we saw some of the most amazing fish, like fish you could only dream of catching. Reese, like you know, yeah. good meter ten, you know, solid Murray cod, um, big yellows, you know, heaps yeah. of carp, but they were all rolled upstream of Dubbo. Um, then it, the river sort of seemed to hold on, but you know, like it was, it was the most incredible experience because you know, you know how I said the water sort of turned that terracotta colour. Yeah. But we went down there one afternoon, and if you if you could imagine a magnet, and you held a magnet over the river and it brought all the fish up to the top. Yeah. We we could see fish, like. We call it cheeseling when the carp do it because it looks like a cheesel sticking out of the water with their lips out of the water and catfish just driving themselves up the bank trying to get oxygen. It was like like a a whale beaching scene. The the shrimp, like there was dead shrimp on the river's edge as thick as carpet. Jumping out. And and dead already. Yeah. You know, it, it was just this... It's the craziest thing you've ever seen, mate. Like, we, we've never seen this stuff going down to the river before. Um, and and it, was, it was like all the life was just trying to get air. They just didn't want to be in this tomato soup, terracotta, crappy water. Yeah. And, and they were just trying to get some oxygen in their systems. It was, it was just, yeah, it was like something you'd never seen, mate. It was insane. And it's a shame because it's not the only waterway that's happened to over the last five years. They had like the, the Murray's copped it, the Darling with lack of water. Um, and then, yeah, it, it's it's not good. But the, the positive side of it is the work that you guys are doing, which I want to talk about in a minute. So I haven't even asked you the first question I wanted to ask you. So <laughs> can you, what I want to know is can you tell me why, because, and we'll get onto this, people will learn a little bit about who you are as we talk, but can you tell me why you are so passionate about what you do with our native fish. Now, I know, because I know that it's it's common sense. Well, it's not common sense, but it's something we all want to do. Like, all, all as anglers, well, most of us, you know, want to look after these fish. But there's a difference between wanting to and actually doing. And I don't know anyone else. Well, there's a few people out there, but you yourself put so much effort and time into looking after the fish. So, is it something that you reckon you were born with to have this care for them do you think there was an experience that you had that that caused you to, to be the way you are? I just I just want to say you do a great job and your passion for the fish is incredible. But can you tell me why you're so passionate about looking after them? Oh, mate, it was a it was a shock element for me. Um, you know, you, you you think of the saying "ignorance is bliss," and that's exactly who I was 15 years ago. 
Uh, you know, I used to drive across every bridge, across every trib, across every creek and go, oh, man, I just want to fish that. I just want to fish that. And like I was, you know, Oberon Dam was my babysitter from the age of 6 to 15. I'd just spend hour after hour down there That's walking a good way the banks. It. it was. I was just casting the bank, catching trout, you know, rigging up mud eye. And, and I was lucky enough to, to be a kid um, who loved fishing when, when Oberon Dam was the most amazing trout fishery. Like, you know, you, you get bricked down there all the time, snapped off by six, eight, God knows how many pound brown trout, and it was just on fire. And that, that's where I fell in love with fishing is, you know, as soon as I could walk, my pop had me down there fishing. But yeah, I suppose that the light bulb moment just from having a, a love of fishing was, you know, the first time talking to a couple of fisheries um, researchers and education officers out here and they told me that we've only got 70 you know we, well I should say we've only got sort of 30 to 10 percent of our native fish stocks left because we've lost 70 to 90 percent of our native fish stocks across the Murray-Darling Basin I was like yeah that's really and then you know a, a bit further, yeah. you know a bit more further investigation and um, learning about thermal pollution and learning about the fact that, you know, in New South Wales we stock two to three million fish, but it's estimated that we suck out up to 50 million native fish through unscreened irrigation and offtake every year. It was like, what? And then, you know, carp, gambusia, redfin, willows, loss of riparian. We've crashed uh, the water quality through increased sediment and, and high production agriculture. You know, Reese, the thing that sort of stirred me into action was, mate, it is a wonder that we have got any fish any left fish at left. all. Mm. We have done our very, very best to to absolutely wipe out native fish like you wouldn't believe, you know, and, and we've seen it, mate, like trout cod, once abundant. Macquarie yep. perch, once abundant. Purple spotted gudgeon, silvers, caddies. The list goes on and on and on. Like the, If you go back and you read our early explorers' accounts of what our rivers were and what our rivers now are, it, it is a completely different set of cards. A completely different set of cards to, to what we have done now. Our rivers have turned into muddy water delivery veins that we send water down to fill orders. They are not the interlinked billabongs full of decaying timber, full of, of, you know, Sturt described our inland rivers as full of native fish floating um, like like shoals of birds in midair. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of any inland river. Too. You could, mate. You could see them and your average size. Like I'd, I'd give anything for me and you to get in a time machine and go back you know, about 200 years. Th- yeah, 300 years and walk walk the banks of the mighty Macquarie with our bait casters and spinner baits and surface lures because it, it would just be so completely different, different. To, to, to what we have now, mate. And 300 years is not a very long time. That's like a speck in how many years the river's been there and look how much it's changed. We've done a pretty good job of wrecking the show just quietly, mate, eh? Absolutely. And is that just... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And is that just ignorance because of people back then actually didn't know or they just didn't care because life was about survival and money and, you know, just got left behind? Like, 
Yeah, I don't think the science was there, mate. Um, the mind still boggles, though, as to, to why here in Australia, like, you know, we're, we're one of the world's leading countries when it comes to, to, to our way of life and, and how lucky we are. But yeah. we still suck out up to 50 million fish in the Murray-Darling Basin through our pumps and offtake techniques when for 100 years in the US they've had self-cleaning um, offtakes where they've used engineering, they've used science to make sure that the fish, the shrimp, the turtles, the fish eggs, the larvae all stay in the river and they don't get sucked up and into our irrigation channels or into our offtakes. I, yeah. I just, why are we so slow on the uptake, mate? And do you know, because I know you've been working on it, so I want to talk to you as we go on, I do want to talk to you about all the issues um, facing our native fish and our systems because um, there's a lot I want to talk about and you brought it up now. So, with the with the with this stuff, especially the offtakes, and we'll talk about cold water pollution and that as well. But is it what is? I know you've done a bit of work around it, and you're you're the leading man in Australia trying to get something happening about this. What's the process for you? Like, what have you experienced over the last few years? Is it something that's going to happen? Is it going to be possible? Why hasn't it happened already? Is it just yeah, what's what's your thoughts yeah. on that? No, look, I'm 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 certainly not the leader in this, mate. Like there, there are some incredibly hardworking people, like um, you know, Dr. Craig Boys from New South Wales Fisheries, and um, Craig Copeland, the CEO of Ozfish, um, and you know, Samantha Davis from New South Wales Fisheries, who have long been you know aware of these these troubles that. The Macquarie River has been facing. Um, you know, it, it's it's. I don't, I don't know, mate. It, honestly, I, the mind boggles as to why we are so far behind the United yeah. States in in fish screening. But I was I was lucky enough to go to the United States um, three or four years ago um, and and do a tour um, of of basically some fish screening infrastructure, um, fish passage infrastructure. And, and all those sorts of things which, which yeah. help me form an understanding of, of the problems that our native fish are facing. Um, and I, I do wonder why we are so so far behind, Reese. that, you know, to have pumps in, in stream that can just lift the life out of the river and plan it all in an irrigation channel. We don't have to have that, but it just comes down to the one thing, the, the, one, the one debate you know, worldwide, and that's money. Who's going to yeah. pay for it? Who's going to pay to fix the problem? Yeah. Um, fish. If we had an infinite bucket bucket of money here this afternoon, mate, and you know, we 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 could say, righto, we're going to fix all the fish screening in the Murray Darling Basin. It would be like increasing the annual stocking efforts by twenty five times. We yeah. Only... So it would be better than stocking, eh? Mate, we only stock two to three million native fish in New South Wales every year, and it's estimated we suck fifty million yeah. out while we do that. Yeah. So if we could get fish screening in, you know, the the return, the burst of life that you would see in our inland fisheries would be phenomenal, Reese. Yep. Absolutely you, phenomenal. And you have two or three or four seasons of that, and yeah, you'd wow. notice the difference. So for people who are trying to picture it but can't get it. It's pretty straight. But the pipe goes into the water, and it can suck up 
it sucks up what anything as big as what and then it goes straight up and all the solution is, I'm sure there's a bit more to it, but on the very bottom of it, can you explain what the screen is? It's pretty basic, isn't it? And it would just stop fish from being pulled up through the pipes. It is, mate. So currently the, we've got trash racks, um, which are very wide um, sort of grids that go across our pumps to stop debris going into them. In America, they have an application for all needs. So um, there's 4,000 pumps in New South Wales alone with an offtake bigger than six inches. So there's yep. 4,000 vacuum cleaners in our rivers that do not have a fish screen on them. So anything from, you know, the size of a pea to the size of a 30-centimetre Murray cod can go up. Really? Up these, up that these pumps. That Wow. Absolutely, mate. Even bigger. And it's not just them, it's the food. It's it's all the food in the system. It's the shrimp, it's the yabbies, it's your minnows. Um, we, we've got so many unscreened vacuum cleaners in our rivers, but in the States, they have an application for all measures. They've got self-cleaning, rotating drum screens. So it's basically like putting a, um, a colander on the end of a pump, and it spins around, and it's got a jet going back onto the screen, and it cleans it as it spins around, but nothing goes near it. They've also got, um, it's like an upside-down ice cream cone, yeah. and it's all about reducing velocity of the pump. So instead of this really intense vacuum cleaner at, at the bottom of the river or anywhere in the water column sucking up the life, it's a, it's got an upside-down ice cream cone on it, and it's it's called a, a cone screen. So it's basically got a, a windscreen wiper on the outside of it that, that they can sense. This is how, how smart they have got the technology in the States. If they sense a drop in, in the pump's offtake, they know that there's um, some kind of blockage on the screen. So the computer trips and says activate the self-cleaning. It's like a windscreen wiper on a truck. It goes yeah. around the outside of the cone screen two or three times and then stops and the velocity picks back up. And you keep keep taking water only out of the system, and yeah. not all the life that that's within the water. Wow. So, and in America, do you know? Is it just was it just something the government fund like put money towards to have, or is it the work of anglers originally, um, or fisheries? Mate, I think it's been the work of you know everybody over there. You know, yeah. they have um, watersheds over there. We, we'd call it a, a catchment or a valley, but they've got watersheds over there and. Look, in America, they've got two things, Reese. One is they've got a lot of water, mm. and the, the second is they've got a huge population base, you know, 350-odd million people over there. Yeah. Um, and, and they've got groups like Trout Unlimited, which mm -hmm. has got 150,000 financial members who have been, you know, actively lobbying, working to get fish screening in, governments legislating for, for things like fish screening. Um, and you've got a really active group, of, of anglers over there you know one, one thing I found amazing when I went to the States is that a, you know a species like salmon they don't just have a cod close season like we do they will actually measure the the um, climatic and in-stream sort of measurements annually and they will move their close breeding season because you know how the natives will spawn earlier yep. one you know one year here and later yep. the next in America Every different watershed and, and, and a lot of the different streams have a flexible and variable closed season for breeding really? due to the in-stream conditions. So they know when their fishery needs 
that pressure to be taken off them. Yeah. And and they will move their out what what is effectively our Murray Cod closed season accordingly. Um, for we, that we, individual system. For for the individual system. Wow. Mate. So, so your closed season, you know, where you guys are compared to us out here in the Central West, might be six weeks apart. And it would be like it it it, it would like these waterways, even our waterways, would vary that much. Yeah. Exactly. That's why, right. and that's why we've got three. I, I imagine that's why we've got three months to try and cover it all. Whereas over there, their their season closure would be shorter because they know when it is. Yeah, it is, mate, and that that's yeah. just why it guts me when you hear that you you you've got a lot of road up fish, a lot of road up Murray cod or fish on the nest in early December when Murray cod yep. season has just opened, and you're yep. thinking, oh, mate, we're pulling breeding fish off the nest. This is when we're going to get our bulk generational inflow of fingerlings into the system but because we don't have the ability the funding the drive or the population to support a flexible you know closed season yeah. in different catchments we're so far behind the eight ball mate mm. well yeah we're already like an easier sort of step would be these screens and then that would be obviously even more effort but how good would it be you know if we oh, could get there mate this, the only way is up for us here like it the only way is up uh, you know, you see fish screening in the States, variable breeding closed seasons in the States. Um, you see fish passage, which is another another thing, fish you know. Like, massive. Well, like when we had these fish kill events that we've just seen, you know, unfold here and downstream yeah. at Menindee in the past, um, what happens is, like, just say we had a big fish kill up here at Dubbo, but things weren't quite so bad out in the bar and all the Darling or down the Murray. Eventually, the season comes good, like we're seeing now, yeah. and and you'd have a big spawning event in your stronghold areas that didn't have the same level of fish kills that we had, yep. and then Bellabelli are known to be migratory specialists on a, mm-hmm. on a good flow year. They can move over 2,000 kilometers mm-hmm. in a single flood year, so yep. you might have fish move out of the Darling, the Barwon, come back up into the Macquarie, where we've had a big fish kill. And repopulate the area. And repopulate the area. Mm. But the one thing that's happened in the last 60, 70, 80, 100 years, Reese, is we've now gone and put weirs, roads, culverts, dams, and the majority of them don't have fishways, mate. So not only have we crashed the water quality, sucked the fish out, made the water cold to stop them breeding in large sections, but we've gone and put baffles effectively in large sections of the river to stop the strongholds of migratory fish coming back and repopulating the areas that have had fish kills. Yeah, there's everything is against the fish, isn't it? It's hard, like, mate. It's, it's a wonder, like we said, it's a, it's a wonder there's any left at all. Yeah. Like I can, uh, for example, in my area, we've got a weird downstream of Wagga um, and people go, oh, there's not many, like so, say it's, it's downstream a little bit and people go, oh, you don't catch many yellows, you know, in Wagga. And I'm like, yeah, it's because they all push upstream and I catch them all the way up towards the below Burrenjuk because they all push up. But I said, if you go the other side of that weir, there is stacks of them. I said, that's why, because they can't travel and move yep. around and they're all moving upstream but there's no fish moving in behind them because there should be an even spread throughout the whole system really technically but there's these yeah. strongholds below every single weir pool because they push up and it's just stopping them from doing what they need to do um oh, 100%. Then, and, and what do you, what do you think like what is the solution is other fish doomed because i know we as humans have built everything 
for you know survival and you know for water storage for you know because you've got to have it but the fish were left behind and all these things are sort of in you've got all these weirds you've got all this stuff what is there things we can do and if we do something small say you fix one weir and add a, a fish ladder does that make a difference like are we yeah and then and then you have a flood like what you just what you guys just had which wiped out a massive population like is thing are things going to be better for the fish in 50 years or well i'd like to hope so mate we're seeing awareness of these problems like you know fish screening and pumping that we've already talked about is 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 now on the radar you know people are talking about it thermal pollution you know we we're trying to address that we failed so far but we're trying to normalize temperatures in our rivers after you know five decades of dumping cold water and stopping the breeding out of most of our major empowerments in the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah. Um, fish passage, you know, the debate has been raging again. It always comes down to money, Reese. how expensive it is. Um, and, and it's a balance. And, and, mate, I'm a businessman. You know, I'm, I'm a, I, own a, I own a business out here in the, in the Central West that sells property. And I know that it's a balance between regional economics because agriculture in Australia has a place. Yeah. I'm, I'm not an irrigator basher at all. And, and I've got lots of mates who are irrigators and and they they are the heart, the beating heart of, of, of inland Australia. Um, and they need to grow crops. crops. They need to, to, to have cattle and sheep. And we need to have a balance between regional economics and environmental sustainability. Um, but at the same time, it's my personal view that I think we're a long way behind in terms of what we can actually do to, to, to better the sustainability levels and, and the position of our, of our native fish. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a shame, eh? Because if money, yeah, if you could, you just would. And then I guess that the, the way to really do it on a big scale is to get help from the government and then you've got to try and influence people to... To, to help and it, it, it could be a battle that's never won you know what I mean like yeah, which is a shame won, but mate. hopefully it, it will it, race it will be it, it will be won but it'll be won in chapters yeah and it's blokes like you and social fishing and, and all your fishers you know who love catching these iconic Australian species to be the catalyst of change you know mm. it, it's what's inspired me to to try and be a voice to try and raise money just to write what what are the first few chapters for us in bringing about change. You know, in yeah. my lifetime, I won't see fish passage on every single barrier to fish passage in the Murray-Darling Basin. It's highly unlikely that I will see a recovery in my lifetime of fish populations by another 20% on what they are mm. now. But you've um, got to do the work now to help future. We you know what do, I mean? Like, mate. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We've got to write the first few chapters of change now, so that those fishers who aren't even born yet, those farmers, um, those Australians who will come in thirty years, at least we've laid the foundation for yeah. them to keep putting the framework of change up, and for them to to write the next chapters. We've done the hard yards, mate. Like out here, you know, when I, when we started doing this stuff. Um, you know, there were still droppers and set lines and, yeah. um, you know, it was a catch it and kill it and fill your esky. And I was a, a green fishing journalist who started writing about illegal fishing and had a big mouth. And before I knew it, you know, a lot of the illegal fishers hated my guts, 
started slashing my tires, slashing the tires on my wife's car, throwing dr- throwing drum nets on my front lawn in the middle of the night. Um, when they slashed two or three more tyres. I had 16 tyres slashed in an 18-month period. You're joking. By, by illegal fishers out here. Just because uh, you were a voice to that needs to stop, like illegal stand, fishing. Yeah, yeah, to stand up against illegal fishing. And yeah. now, you know, that was the best part of 10 years ago. And now, you know, we've got this river repair bus and this work for the Dole program. And some of those guys who were giving me such a hard time have gone full circle and have actually worked on the river repair bus and started yeah. planting trees and helping us to repair the river How because they, they've seen the change. But it's, the, it's, it's, the same, it's the same with cultural change with catch it, kill it and grill it, illegal fishing, drum nets and set lines. You know, the, the changes that were so hard for us to go through 10 years ago, the debate, the argument, you know, the, the sleepless nights just thinking about far out. I've just got in a blue over this this fishing stuff that I'm passionate about again. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I want to be in 10 years' time saying, look, yes, I did have some hard conversations 10 years ago, but here we are now and, and, mate, we're in a better position. So. Yeah, exactly. And then what do you um... – it, those even I now still have struggled to explain to people who are you know of older sort of older people who are, you know that that is they just don't understand why I put the fish back like I still have that conversation today <laughs> and I imagine in fifty or sixty years time that it'll be the opposite and you'll people you know it'll be those conversations won't happen all that much because you know people grow up a certain certain way and that's all they ever knew so you know and a lot of people some people aren't open minded. Um, and reasonable with change but like you said you've seen a change in the last 10 years and it'll only get the change will continue as time goes on it will mate it will 100% I just want to take a quick break from this interview to talk to you guys about the upcoming live Q&A now we have a live Q&A coming up at the end of the month and I'm going to be joined by the one and only Jacko Davis and Jacko Davis is an absolute legend when it comes to chasing Murray Cod and he will be joining me live on Wednesday the 25th of November at 7.45pm. Jacko and I will be on this live Q&A and you can shoot through any questions that you wish. So we'll be answering questions about Murray Cod, Golden Perch, whatever you want to ask Jacko, you can shoot him through and he will answer them for you live. This is going to be a cracker of a night. We have a Q&A every single month and this month is the Cod Opening Special with Jacko Davis. Jacko has, does so many styles of fishing. He loves his Murray Cod. He knows how to catch them and he's an icon when it comes to chasing big Murray Cod. And if you've wanted to pick his brain, this is your opportunity. Join us for over an hour and a half asking any questions you wish to Jacko Davis and myself. Now, it's all available inside the SF membership. So, it's available for all SF members. But you get access to all the previous live Q&As as well. They're recorded and saved and they're accessible through the SF membership. So, we've had six or seven live Q&As already. They are already available to you to go watch again and we have one every single month we get a special guest on and we do a live q a every single month so if you want to be there on the night and shoot through questions for jacko make sure you join the sf membership but 
If you're listening to this after that date or you're wanting to listen to some of the other Q&As, go check out the Social Fishing membership. So you can go to socialfishing.com.au, go to our website, check out the membership and that is just one of the components. There are so many other things inside the membership but there is always an upcoming live Q&A. So even though you might be listening to this in six months time, check it out because there'll be other awesome special guests on plus you can still get this interview with Jacko. So that is the live Q&A inside the Social Fishing membership and you can learn more at socialfishing.com.au. Now, let's get back to the episode with Matt. I want to talk about, you just talked about the river repair bus and and planting the plants. Now, can, can you tell, because I know what you're talking about, but can you tell our listeners all about the Inland Waterways Rejuvenation Association, which did you start? Yeah, no, we did. So it's a it's a pretty simple story. Um, we I was working in a fishing tackle shop in Dubbo, and I, I met a lifelong friend, Mick O'Neill, and we both shared How long a love. Ago was for, this? Uh, about eleven years ago. Okay, so eleven and, years ago, yeah. Yep, yeah, and we both said, righto, let's do something for the river. We love the river. We love fishing. We said, righto. So. I've got a question, oh, sorry, I, I don't mean go. to interrupt. Is You're this right. just after your conversation with those fisheries officers within a few years of learning, you know, what's actually going on and then you thought we could do something? Is this where it kind of sort of sparked Mate, from? Cl- very close. So this is about three or four years before that. Right, so okay. We, we, the first idea we came up with to do something for the river was to buy fingerlings. So we thought, what can we do for the river? Mick and I? So yep. we thought, let's raise some money to buy some fingerlings for the river. So we went, righto, mm-hmm. we put our heads together. I put a, an angle a, a angle fridge, a 40-litre, $1,100 angle fridge on my credit card. Yeah. And my, my wife said, you're mad. And I went, well, let's see where this goes. And then um, we got a lure sponsor, um, Native Lures and Rod Price came on board. And we filled this angle fridge full of lures yeah. And we started dragging it up and down the street in Dubbo. Um, Mick O'Neill was taking it to the pub on a Friday night on this little trolley we got from Bunnings. Nice. And we just had this little fridge ratchet strapped with the lid open with all these lures. And we told people, we're going to buy fingerlings for the river and we're going to do good stuff for the river. And they said, what's the prize? And we had this little fridge on a trolley and they were like, shut up and take my money. They were hey. just, hand, mate, just forking out the, the, the red backs, the pineapples, we turned around after, um, oh, we did it for about four months, 16 weeks. We drew it just okay. near Christmas and we raised about 16 grand. Um, so, so we had mate, we had businesses go, look, we don't want any tickets, but if we can put a sign on the cart and the fridge of our <laughs> business, we'll give you 500 bucks. And yeah, we were like, yeah, man. Went no all worries. around town for four months. <laughs> it did. And, you know, people were just got on board, you know, like we made some Got, had some core flute signage donated from the local sign writers and before you know it, we've got some good coin. So how did um, they find out about this? Did you have a bit in the paper or people just saw you in the pub because you guys were doing it that often? Down the pub, down the main street, did a nice. bit of an article in the paper. Um, it nice. was just people got behind it. Yeah. And, and so we drew. That? In Dubbo? Yeah, that was just in Dubbo, yeah. Yep. And we took it around to the you know a few of the smaller centres around. Um, yeah. Then we drew the fridge and... Eagle, that's what they call Mick O'Neill. Um, Eagle, Eagle and I sort of had a yarn, and we thought there's got to be an easier way 
to, to make some coin. Like, this is awesome. We're really happy with the bank we just made. Like, 16 grand's a lot of money. And that was a lot of fish. Is that um, what you did with that money? We did. We just bought bulk fingerlings, mate, for the river. And put them in through that we, area? We did. We just ordered a stocking straight away. And then we were so amped from the success of that project that we started Project 2. And we thought, let's have a fishing competition. So the idea and that's where of, the Burundong Classic started. That was her, mate. That was her. So first year, um, we had a marine dealer come on. You know, pretty simple prizes. But again, you know, what amazed us was the drive of the community and the passion of the community who all shared a love of the river race. Yeah. Like as soon as we told them what we were about and what we were trying to do, they were like, nah, I'm on that. I back that. 20 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever it was, I support you. And as soon as we said we're going to have a fishing competition where all funds go back into bettering the river, um, the sponsors came. And we had people, you know, donating a, a, a couple of butchered sheep, um, a lawnmower, yeah. a, a wheelbarrow, a whippersnipper, a mower, um, a holiday, you know, accommodation at their unit in Port Macquarie, um, yep. cat cash, you know, and yep. we all we just went wow. And then the first year, five hundred anglers turned up, and then yeah. we went, this is cool. And then the second year, seven hundred turned up, um, and then. You know, when we had our ninth annual Lake Baranong Classic, we're giving away 50 grand in community donated prizes, a new car, a new boat, a holiday, and we've got a crowd of about 3,500 people there. Yeah, wow. Um, mate, we were putting around the raffle bucket for like a lawnmower, an angle fridge, and 10, 10 combos, and we were taking $9,000 in 30 minutes. All because Jeez, people knew, that? all because people knew that the money wasn't going in my pocket. It's not going in your pocket. It's not going in anyone's pocket. It's it's because the money was going back into making fishing and making the local waterways better for the community. So yeah, and that's what it's all about. And that and that's why you saw so much success with this competition. It was, mate. The success was addictive. The, the fundraising, the, the sense of goodwill, um, the sense of community was highly addictive, Reese. It, it, was, it was such a, a major thing. Like, it, we were, you know, we, we won the 2015 Australian Fish Habitat Heroes Awards, Mick O'Neill, Dubbo Citizen of the Year. Um, we're just accolades and being invited to speak at conferences about how we managed to muster this sense of community and how we'd managed to, to, to rally the recreational fishing community as stewards of their own waterway. And then, you know, I guess the big the big change for us was when we realised that restocking fish is not the answer to healthy rivers. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's what I, I want you to talk about that. Can you, so just keep that thought about restocking so that that competition sort of started with the iwra tell us about the um the bus and how that sort of branched off into that and then tell me about where the money went from these competitions and it turned into what you just talked about and the fact that it's not just stocking so when the money started to roll in hot we were like 
where I think every nearly every Australian fishing club starts is that the way to fix your river is to tip fish in the river. Mm-hmm. But a dear friend of mine, Rod Price, who's also you know a fisheries researcher and scientist, he pulled me aside at the pub one night, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it, Reese. He he had a napkin and a and a texter, and he said, Matt, look at this. I need you to look at this. And he, he basically drew the food pyramid on the back of a, a serviette. Yeah. You picturing this exactly as you drew it, as you're telling me? Exactly, mate. Yeah. I've got my hands in a pyramid as I talk yeah. to you because it was the light bulb moment of, wow. And it was, if you tip bag after bag of fish in the river, you're basically introducing apex predators at the head of the food pyramid. This is basic year eight science when yeah. i'm a pretty basic guy mate i was probably the kid up the back making a pea shooter so it was good <laughs> for me to hear this this again but if if you keep introducing the apex predators into the food pyramid without totally replenishing the cycle the food cycle from the bottom of the pyramid up you don't have a self-sustaining food web so you you're saying to, by Putting in those fish, you're talking about cod and goldens, they're the apex once they grow to a certain size. So you're putting them in, but the things that the other parts of that ecosystem aren't there. If you don't have the the habitat for the for the phytoplankton and and the smaller fish and the bait and the yabbies and the shrimp as well as your apex predators in proportion. Exactly. It's like stocking cattle into a barren paddock. You know, yeah. you, you want a really, really good base of, of um, you know, food source for those cattle in that paddock. Otherwise, what's the point of stocking them? They're not going to grow well. They're going to be skinny and poor. They're not going to want to breed. They're going to be unhealthy. So the way to, if you truly want a healthy Australian fishery, is to rebuild the fishery from the bottom of the food pyramid up, and that's habitat, mate. Habitat makes fish happen. So, so you had this conversation after how many Barrandong Classics? Probably two or three. Or... Probably three. So the the first, the money for the first three all went into stocking? A lot of it did. A lot of it went into um, education as well. Um, yep. and And also building the competition we reinvested yep. it to make the competition better so better. That we, we, yeah. we we had a larger larger base of fishes but after the money really started to flow we moved from um, restocking to a re-snagging and that's so, a big it makes a, ma- a much bigger difference to a waterway than yep. restocking it did mate and we were lucky enough to access some habitat mapping through great relationships with New South Wales fisheries. And they, they basically jumped in a boat with a high-definition sounder. They've been down the river and they've looked at the snag loading, the weed loading, where the refuge holes are in the river, um, yep. the weed levels in the riparian zone, um, and basically where the river is healthy and where it's not. Where no, have the no. snags been pulled out? Where have they not? And that gave us a data set to work back towards so That's that so good. we could do it. We could truck snags out and we could get an excavator. And, and we spent, you know, probably the best part of a quarter of a million bucks introducing hundreds and hundreds of large woody habitat structures into the river. So, you know, we're talking big trees with root balls on them that might be yeah. 8 to 12 tonne. 
yeah. on coming in on low loaders and building them. Like, if you saw them, Reese, you'd just be like, yep, I'm flicking my lure at that because I know that's going to hold fish. Yeah, and, I've seen and, some of the photos of the finished products. It's yeah, good. they're the kind of, of habitats that we were, we were introducing. Um, and we basically threw so much effort at that and time at that that we have filled in um, the snag-deficient voids in the Macquarie River and yeah. and we have re-snagged the Macquarie, mate. So. so by doing that, that's one piece to the puzzle of, you know how you're talking about if you stock fish, right, and there's yep. no food below them, there's also not enough habitat. So one yep. way of ticking off, you know, we add new fish or the fish breed, more are going to survive because now there's more spots for them to live. Oh, uh, spot on, mate. And like we, we, we've seen stock-impacted, sandy, barren banks where we've introduced two or three snags with a root ball. They set them so that the flow will pass over them in high flow events. They GPS mm-hmm. mark them so they know that they don't move. The, the excavator driver has to be really picky with where they put the root ball and set them into the bank. Yeah. And, you know, we've done that and gone back eight months later and there's the most beautiful back eddy behind this snag with ribbon weed and shrimp and a mixture of fast water going past, you know, swirling slow water. And you've just turned basically this this void barren section of river into yep. the most amazing ecosystem that is now holding food. It's got diversity in flow. It's got ambush points for your apex predators, but it's also got, you know, um, the, the shrimp and the smaller fish. And, you know, yeah. you can just see the ecosystem working because yep. there's in-stream, in-stream habitat. Like, you know, Sturt and those guys, to go back to the Explorer's Diaries, they described our inland rivers as full of decaying timber. That was the thing, mate. They were full yep. of decaying timber because the riparian zone was so thick. Like a lot of a lot of spots, and you'll notice it when you drive over a bridge and you think, oh, I want to fish that. Have a look at the riparian zone. That riparian zone 300 years ago would have been, you know, 30, 40, 50 metres thick, a thriving ecosystem with food pumping into the river and 40% of a native fish's diet comes from the life in that riparian zone. Tell, explain what, for, for, for people who don't know what the riparian zone is, can you explain what it is? The riparian zone is basically the belt of vegetation on either side of the river. And sadly, it's been removed in a lot of Australia. We've seen, you know, agriculture really push the riparian zone back to just one or two trees thick. Often the riparian zone's not even there. But 300 years ago, that riparian zone was was thick and bushy and lush with no weeds, no willows, and it was a thriving ecosystem full of birds, insects and life, grasses, rushes. There was none of the external pressures that we see on the riparian zone now. So, yeah, look at that that, vegetation... is really important for the waterway. It's everything to the waterway, Reese. So what it's are the main benefits it. that that it it's it's basically a food source. It also keeps the water from getting too hot, as well, temperature wise. A hundred percent and forty percent of a native fish's diet comes out of the riparian zone, whether it's dragonfly, insect, bird, whatever it is. 40% of a native fish's diet is reliant on the riparian zone. 
And in terms of our apex predator, that feeds, say, the crustaceans or the small fish in the system. And then those small fish flourish and then that feeds the apex predators. To Mate, a point, that's one way of looking at it, but it can also be birds falling in that the cod just eat anyway. Oh, that, mate, it's everything. It, it's all that insect life and everything that comes to the water to drink and to live and to thrive. You know, insects in that riparian zone play a, a huge part. And I, I love, you know, um, Ozfish's um, research and, and helping us grow our understanding of this again. Up in, in Queensland, there was a local council and they were mowing the river's edge, um, you know, right to the water's edge. Yeah. And it, anyway, they did a they did a fish survey at, before before they did this project, and so they did a fish survey. Yeah, life wasn't that good. They're mowing right to the river's edge. They simply did this, Reese. They went to the local council and they said, "Hey guys, can you please not mow right to the river's edge and leave, say, a four-meter corridor of natural vegetation on the river's edge?" And the council said, "Not a problem. Less mowing for us. Happy to do it." They went back um, a couple of years later, and after that vegetation was back, and there was rushes and reeds and grasses and sedges and all that sort of stuff growing on the river's edge, yeah. and they did it. They did a fish survey. They found catfish in there that hadn't been seen in that section of the river for 15 years, and oh, native yeah. fish species had increased by 300%. No way. Simply by not mowing right to the river's edge. How's that? It's incredible, that's mate. That's insane. And that's, yeah, because there'd be no, basically if you mowed right to the edge, it pretty well gets rid of the whole zone when the grass is short. and. Like not mowing. That's not like putting trees. That's not like chopping trees out. That's pretty minor, you know, in terms of the impact you could have. But the benefit it had. Imagine if people, you know, if you stopped cattle or you you put trees back in or something that makes a bigger difference. How much of a percentage that would make, you know? Oh, mate, and you blow that out right across the whole Murray Darling Basin, and you you know the other the other introduction that we've seen Reese in 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 you know, modern man's time into the Australian environment is hard-hoofed animals. So you've mm-hmm. hit the nail on the head, mate. Cattle, sheep, goats, deer, all compacting that riparian zone. So like you said, mate, if we could fence off and have off-stream watering points in the paddock and replenish that riparian zone across the Murray-Darling Basin to, you know, lush riparian belts full of insects, birds, um, you know, lizards, all your reptiles, turtles. The, the benefits of that would be freakish if we could just return those riparian belts to their former glory. Mm. So the biggest, so looking at it, the biggest thing we as anglers can do is put structure back in systems because not only does it create homes for the fish, it helps erosion, it creates homes for Eat, like smaller ecosystems in the river for shrimp, weeds, reeds to grow, all that stuff. So putting structure back in systems and also building riparian zones are the two sort of key things that you can start at the ground level doing as anglers. Yeah, yes, absolutely, mate. And look, it's a simple analogy, Reese. From little things, big things grow. Whether, yeah. it's, whether it's grasses and habitat, you know, next to the river, or whether it's in-stream habitat with snags and, and reeds and rushes and um, you know ribbon weed and all those sorts of things. Yes, that's definitely one. And no waterway is the same, but 
But that's where an organisation like Ausfish can help because they've got chapters that are already up and running. They've got expertise in science and relationships with um, fisheries managers and, and the ability to be able to help fishers find out what it is that they can do best to benefit their local fishery. So if there are any fishers out there who would like to restore some habitat, um, who would like to go on a journey and and you know repair their river and 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 write a couple of chapters in in turning the plight of our Australian rivers around? Reach out to Ausfish. Oz, Ausfish is something that I'm like I sit on the board for them as a volunteer, but I'm just so amazed to see their journey go from a handful of chapters to dozens and dozens of chapters across Australia. And they do amazing things like everything from re-snagging in the Macquarie and down on the Darling to, you know, the, the Seed for Snapper program and um, all these other amazing initiatives that they're doing. So if anyone is interested, um, you know, check out the Ausfish website um, and, and reach out to Ausfish because they've got experts there who, who would certainly love to help them race. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna get you to mention that. Um, Ozfish do an incredible job, and I, I was. I'm gonna. I was gonna ask you a few questions about Ozfish, but I think I'd be keen to get Craig on actually and have a chat on a yeah. dedicated episode about Great what guy. they do and yep. more about what he's done to create that and all the work there. So we might leave that for a yep. dedicated episode with Craig. I'll be um, tuning in for that one, mate. That, that's. You know, I've been and toured America, and you know, thirty years of bettering fisheries. Probably more the fossil, Craig, and I'd say that to his face. He'd know I'd have, I'd have a shot at him any time, but, mate, he's a, he's a great friend, but he is passionate about um, repairing rivers, and he, he's been doing it for a long time, mate, so I'd certainly be tuning in for that edition of your podcast. Yeah, we might do that. So we might, we'll, we'll talk all about Ozfish uh, in a future episode if Craig is keen to join me, which I'm sure he will be, so we'll leave that. But as you, Matt, touched on then, um, for everyone listening, these kind of these kind of things that you can do to help the waterway, help your local river, stream, whatever it is, um, go check out Ozfish, um, and that's a way that they can basically. It's like if you were wanting to do something like this, like you guys were, but it gives you the guidance, doesn't it? Ozfish is like the backbone to help you, you know, achieve these goals and help the system exactly. rather than the hard sort of path that you took to yeah. start with. Yeah, no, look, and we're, we're proud to be part of it, but certainly linking up with like-minded fishers who have got contacts, they've, they've written grant applications before, they've, you know, they've, they've done some riparian planning, they've done some re-snagging, they've done some restocking, whatever it is that, you know, the fishers out there listening, um, you know, today need to do in their fishery. Chances are that Ausfish have, have tackled it before and they can help. So, yeah. no, I'd, I'd be keen to encourage anybody who, who feels the urge to, to do something good for their local waterway and their local fishery um, to, to reach out, Rhys. And it makes a massive difference. Even if, you know, you're just one person, you think, yeah, what kind of difference can I make? But if you've got a lot of people, this is kind of that step towards what you're talking about with, you know, possibly fixing those bigger issues that we've got. But we can start with these smaller issues. Um, oh, and absolutely. even though they're small, they make a huge difference, like you just said about the riparian zone. So if you were looking at that from a fishing point of view, if you had a whole heap of snags on a bank that was kind of barren compared to a bank that had a heap of vegetation very close to the edge, based on that knowledge, there would be a lot more fish in that zone compared to a more barren zone. 
Well, mate, I'll throw that back to all your listeners and yourself. You know, if you're out fishing and you see a really barren, sandy bank on the edge, you're going to flick a lure at it? No, no, exactly no. <laughs> but exactly. if there's a set as a snag on a bank where if, if but more so instead of looking at sort of the structure and the water level, look up a bit, you know what I mean? Like look at the overhanging yeah. trees, look at the, the actual zone on the bank. Um, exactly. And I can, I can picture some spots that are fully lush and then others that are quite barren on that oh. strip um, and the difference that the, the fish based on what you've just said then with that example that you gave yep yep technically, that's yeah nine out of ten murray cod caught off some form of structure um and that that difference in in-stream habitat that you're talking about reese is exactly right like you can see a stock impacted you know a sheep thrashed bank with just sheep no crap all over yep. it no shade no vegetation, no reeds, no rushes, no established eucalypts. And then you can, that, that bank that you're envisaging just then, you know, with the most beautiful overhanging she-oaks and eucalypts and swirling water going past a snag that's been in there for 40 years. And I can just see my lure touching down behind that snag and just getting crunched because I know yeah. that's where the fish are going to live, mate, is those long yeah. established areas of habitat. It, it is. It's 100% habitat that makes fish happen mate and if the riparian zone is so important right this is this, this is something i want to ask the, the damage stock is massive right so stock damage that completely compact it you know crap all over it destroy it and you know you walk through a paddock that's full of cattle you can just tell um it also <clears throat> affects the erosion you know you got really poor erosion because one you don't have the vegetation holding the bank in two they sort of lift it up break the banks do <laughs> If, if we could restore the riparian zone, like, like you were just saying, throughout the whole system, it would make a huge difference to fish populations and, and the health of the fish. It, is it something that's possible? And then also, because do you know how much percentage of the waterway isn't owned by farmers you know what i mean like there's that much land i know a lot of them are crops and not not cattle but how much water frontage is destroyed by them is there something that can be done or do you know if there's something that is being done or do you have do you just have to sort of i don't know i, I'm, I don't know what i'm getting at it's just you, you, mate no you're you're going to a point of of wonder which is where i go but i'll, I'll throw this back to your race you imagine this yeah. can you imagine at least 30 to 40 metres of riparian on every major river and tributary, thinking that we farm to the river's edge by a metre sometimes at the moment. So just, just let's say by some magic genie, we did the following. We restored the riparian zone. We had fish screens on every single offtake or vacuum-like pump in the river. We fixed thermal pollution and we pulled out the 4,000 barriers to fish passage in the Murray-Darling Basin, and all those four things were done tomorrow morning, can you imagine what yeah. the fishing would be like? Yeah, no. no. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. It, it would be nothing like anything we've ever experienced. Like a bad day's fishing would be better than the best that you have these days. Like It'd be it, would. Like, it would be like exactly what it was 300 years ago yeah. until, until we did this and we created it. So what you can create, you can uncreate. We can do this, mate. The habitat makes fish happen, and where there's a will, there's a way. There has to be political will. There has to be 
will amongst the fishers and the environmentally minded in the general community to realise that we have crashed our fish stocks by up to 90%, but it's the habitat that will return those fish. It's water that will return those fish. But there, you know, we talk about the big three or the big four items facing the, the Murray-Darling Basin or complementary measures as we call them. But if yeah. you can open up the fish passage, you can stop sucking the fish out and you can fix that thermal pollution, that would be a mm. massive, massive step towards recovering our native fish stocks and once again, mate, it's a wonder that there are any fish left at all. And in some places there isn't. You know, yeah. there, there used to be a pilgrimage of, of people from larger centres and cities where they'd go out to our regional areas um, on the Darling and they'd fish and they'd catch great native fish. But the tourism has suffered because of it. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the visitation to many of our great Western cities has suffered because of it. The dollar has suffered because of it. And once the fish disappeared, the fishers and the visitors disappeared too, Reese. Yeah. So we've got a lot to gain but for our for our you know, our western towns um, by recovering our fish populations. We've done a lot but there's a lot to go. And I, the mindset's there now. It is. It's just it's just gotta happen. So yeah. back on the Thanks for giving that in a nutshell. That was really powerful. Um, do, back to the farming and the riparian zone. Do farmers own the land right to the river's edge? Do you know? Uh, mate, look, I, I, I believe that, yes, look, it, it, it would be, well, it's the access. It, you, can, you can access an, an inland river from anywhere. Um, and you can be inside the watercourse, which is the top level point, I believe, from anywhere. So if you go, and, yeah, they yeah. they talk. They've talked about the Queen's Chain, and they talk about um, you know the 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 watercourse. But if yeah. you if you and I go and put the kayak in this afternoon, mate, at a public access spot, and we go downstream and pull up on the bank, you can't be kicked off the river. You're in 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 the river's country. That's that's yeah. our our national country, our state country. Um, but in terms of management of that country. Um, in terms of bettering that country, like mate, we we live in a massive, massive continent. Mm. It is a huge backyard, and and we have, you know, what ten percent, if that, of America's population. Not even ten percent. No, so we, we've got a, a similar size continent, you know, with with less than ten percent of the people, um, and it, and that's why we struggle, Reese, for for the management. Like over there, they're pulling out old busted ass dams that are blocking salmon migration to return the health of their rivers because they know those dams are redundant where we have got the power like you said with the dot like the money you know they do mate and they've got the drive and they've got the political will and they've got the understanding but here we're 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 you know 25 chapters before that and yeah. we we haven't been on that journey yet to 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 be where they're at yeah. Um, the mind boggles as to what my kids will see and, and your kids and, you know, what the next generations will see in terms of, of writing the book of, of the health of our Australian rivers. And fingers crossed it, it happens because, like, I see, I have seen in recent years the draw towards anglers fishing impoundments more than rivers. But when I was growing up, it was the other way around. And 
it it's sad because I haven't fished the Bidgee, which I used to fish every weekend, every couple of weeks because it fished so well. I haven't fished it for so long just because of, one, the drought, but two, once that drought hit, it the just conditions have been poor and that's just based on how the water's flowed down the system, how it's dragged in filthy water in a, in a high, you know, so basically what's happened is there's been a, a big rain event it's filled up with water, but it's reduced itself really quickly because the water that usually would have flowed from it further upstream is being caught in the catchment, and then the sediment has hung around in those pools for months, it, almost 12 months. The water color was terrible in that it instantly it went to filth, and it never cleared up, and we just stopped fishing it because it, it just was terrible because it was basically it needed some velocity and some constant velocity to and some height to sort of clear it out a bit but with this drought we had no water they weren't letting any water out so it would rain it would come up it would drop and it would just stay filthy and i stopped fishing it and so many other anglers as well have just resorted to getting their fix from impoundments and the river stuff just hasn't happened like and it's and it's sad and hopefully like with all this work it can turn itself around and the river's become absolutely Absolutely, it it has. And Reese, tell me, what impoundments can you now legally fish in New South Wales during the cod close season? There's two, Copeton and Blaring. So why are you allowed to do that? And the answer to that is because the research has shown that there's no native recruitment in there, as in the fish won't breed in there because it's dammed. Yep. And, the, and the fish that are being caught in there and that are doing well in there are stock. Yep, they're 90. 90. I, I did an interview with um, a few fisheries officers but as they were doing the blaring research and it's about 98% or 99% uh, stocked fish. Yep. And they breed. Cod, cod actually breed and lay eggs every year. A lot of those eggs actually hatch in the impoundments, but because of the ecosystem, there's no food for the juvenile fish. So most yep. of them die, and then the ones that do survive just get eaten. Um, but it's that riparian zone and the reeds and that stuff that they need to survive, which they do in river systems, especially during a flood. They don't have that in the impoundments. So blaring being a impoundment that's fed, uh, by another impoundment so there's no river for them to swim into so it's just a dammed wall that drops water into it there is yep. pretty well no natural recruitment and that's why some other impoundments are still they're not willing to well from my knowledge they're not willing to open them because there's still some minor recruitment with the fish in the river above so mate the question for your listeners that you'll answer is knowing what you know about that about the lack of native recruitment a dam's a good thing if you want native fish to breed in the Murray-Darling Basin? No, not at all. Not at all, mate. Not at well, all. Because not only is it the, the fact that they don't breed in the impoundment, but taking that aside, it's like you were saying, the wall that it creates on the river system, the cold water that it releases. So, But it we've is. got to have them. That's the, you know, for is, looking mate. at we the do. bigger picture, but we've got to try and work with them. We do, mate, and we need to manage them well. As I said, look, I'm not, you know, this. I'm not a stark raven, greedy, mad tree hugger saying no dams, you know, you know, pull out mm. the dams or, or anything like that. But I do believe that our current dams are sufficient, and I do believe that they need to be better managed, and that we shouldn't see 
full impoundments in 2016 drained to one or two percent like we did keep it like we did yeah. Burundong like 2018 like that's not a respectful use of the resource it's it's not responsible for environment it's not responsible for economics and no. it's not responsible for critical humans human needs well the point um, of the impoundment was to survive through drought and it lasted what two years three years and it was empty Oh, mate, it was a shocker. They're talking about, you know, evacuating um, some of our major inland towns when we've got impoundments three and a half times the size of Sydney Harbour drained to, to 1% or 2% within two or three years. Yeah. It's, something's gone massively wrong there, Reese, hasn't it? Mm, yep, exactly. And then you've got the whole sort of situation on looking after the fish because they kind of get pushed aside in terms of the big scheme of things, money and, you know, the water and how it's used. They get pushed aside, but there's ways that it that it can be used in a way that benefits the fish. Like what we've seen, we have seen recently with your environmental flows that replicate the flood when it should for the fish. We're starting to see that a little bit more now um, and certain flows, but yeah, there's a long way forward. And... Can you? You've talked about cold water pollution as well, and this is one thing where the dams aren't managed correctly. Talk about the curtain on Burundong, what its purpose was. For people listening, Matt's talked about cold water pollution, and it's the fact of water coming from the bottom of storages that is freezing cold that then affects the system, as you said, for 160-odd k's downstream in the Macquarie, that it is a cooler water temperature to what it should be, so then it affects, one, it pushes those fish further downstream, but then it affects how they grow, how they breed, how they basically survive. They're like, they're living in an environment that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, can you explain, well, that's basically what cold water pollution is, and it's coming out of every every impoundment, but there was a curtain built for Burundong. Can you explain, and that would have been, should have been, one of these advancements that, you're kind of, we're kind of looking at to make things better, but it didn't work. No, it didn't, mate. So they shelled out $3.4 million um, to the Water New South Wales managed asset, which is the Burundong Dam, so that, you know, basically instead of releasing water from the bottom, mm. you, release, you release more natural water from the top. You can control the temperature. So you know what it's like if you've been for a swim or a ski in a dam, you know, if the water's nice and warm up around your chin and your arms, Put your feet down and the water's cold. You mm, dive what down. It is at the bottom. Oh yeah, dive down three or four meters and it's a completely different set of cards. It's actually quite dangerous and, and you know has claimed a lot of swimmers' lives over the years. Um, you know through cramp and that extremely cold water. So applying that to fish, um, middle of summer, water in the Macquarie should be you know 24, 26 degrees. Um, in the spawning season, say September through to December, Murray cod will really start to do their thing around about 18 degrees. They'll get yep. that, that first rise in temperature, um, the inclination to want to breed, spawn, move, return to their snags that they've been to year after year and lay eggs. That's all you know, Mother Nature-driven things are looking good. Um, however, you get a major release out of a dam that returns that water that was climbing and giving those natural spawning cues towards yep. 12 degrees, you can shut down entire breeding events mm-hmm. or just, just have them not happen from the start. So unfortunately, um, the Lake Burundong thermal pollution curtain 
um, was hit by lightning, which shut down all the winches. They had to go to a manual deployment system. Um, they had a rod pull um, in the bottom, um, and it confused us because all the awards were shelled out for this project. It was a major award-winning project. We thought all our Christmases had come at once on the Macquarie. So it, worked, it did work. It was. It was working, and it was, was going okay, but... Now that we, we look back on the story in its entirety and, you know, out of the six or seven years or whatever it is that it's been supposedly um, supposed to be mitigating thermal pollution, it, 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 it has hardly worked for, for two seasons out of all right. of them. It's either been offline, rotted out, fallen at the bottom of the dam, or it's, it's had those, um, you know, malfunctions which meant um, that here we are just after the most catastrophic fish kills that we have seen on the Macquarie River and we need a breeding season now like never before and yeah. we've got 12 degree water pouring out. out of Lake Burrandong shutting down the breeding ability of native fish. Yeah, and the curtain would have drawn the warm water from the top. It does, Instead. mate. You can, you can mix it. You can set the curtain at a height and you can take your readings and your temperatures and you can let, you know, the, the big ring at the top. It's basically like a funnel or a sock and yeah. it, allow, it allows you to take water from any height that you choose. So, you know, if you, if you set the curtain at four or five metres below the surface, you get a mixture of warm surface water, slightly cooler water as it comes down the column, which gives you a, the result of a, a release matching the water temperature of the flow yeah, downstream. What it then needs to be. Exactly. It's a natural flow event from the dam, just like the river would have been acting, um, you know, before Burrandong Dam or any of our major impoundments were built. Um, but sadly, not the case, mate. Curtain is inoperable. Mm. Um, and we just have to open the screw at the bottom of the dam and pull the plug and that ice cold water from, you know, yeah. 60, 70, 80 metres below the surface is, is the result for the river. And then does that mean that there's very little ecosystem for that first 50 k's? Like, do many people fish sort of that bottom, like that section just below the dam or it's pretty pointless because the fish just don't thrive in that area? Mate, there's fish there. They'll be stocked fish and there's some good fish there. Um but it's nothing as to what it should be. Should like be. it's yeah. it's what you and I call good fish today, Reese, you know, yeah, being not, being our age. Not not what it could be. Not what be. we're aiming for. Yeah, like, not what the goal is. We want to go down there and catch four fish over a meter in a session and go, Yeah, that, that was okay. <laughs> we don't want, we don't want to catch one meter fish down there in four years and go, mm. this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But you so know? many people don't, like we we don't know and if you don't consciously think about what it should be, we just think it's the norm. You know what I mean? Or not we, we but people, people, anglers, they just think cod are hard to catch and I've grown up knowing cod are hard to catch because in the last, you know, five decades, they have been and we're, we're learning, I'm learning from people who are a few decades older than me and then you learn from them, cod are just a hard fish to catch and that's just how it is. But really, technically, that shouldn't be and it's because there's such a lack in population compared to what was back in the day and we're not aiming for just bettering it from what it was two decades ago. We want to get it back to the ultimate goal as you've been talking about the whole time is to get it back to those stories from two, three, four hundred years ago. Oh, absolutely, mate. We can only dream and it, it's probably... 
highly unlikely, if not impossible, that we would ever see it back there. But imagine even just recovering it by 50%. Mm. You know, it, it would it would blow away every fishing experience that any of your listeners or, you know, you or I have ever had if, if we could recover our native fish stocks. And, you know, just to recap, mate, like addressing those big three or four issues being fish passage, sucking fish out of the river, um, stopping that with fish screens, mm-hmm. th- thermal pollution. Um, if we address those three, um, our likelihood of, of seeing a strong, solid recovery, um, you know, would, would be would be incredible. But it, you know, there's got to be a will, and there's got to yeah. be a political will. Um, but the more people that are informed, the more people that know about these issues, the the more likely that change um, will occur, you know, it's more likely that change will occur the more people will know about it is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's great that we can talk about these issues and, and have people, you know, grow their understanding of what our rivers are really staring down the barrel of. Well, that's that's the reason I wanted to get you on and to talk about what we've talked about. And, and it's because some people just don't, like, they just don't know about this. Like, I learn about it from, I'm pretty sure, that summit and you guys yeah. and listening to you speak. I didn't like, know about it not so long ago either, mate. You so, know? yeah, it's a start it's to share. And I know you've been, you know, sort of involved with this kind of for the last 10 years and it's common knowledge to you, but a lot of anglers don't know the impact. And, and, and what I hear from most is that imagine what the rivers would be like if we didn't have carp. People think that the only problem is carp, but these things yeah. you're talking about, that carp are huge, a massive issue, but there's bigger things as well. Oh, mate, look, I reckon our natives would, would give the carp a fair caning if, if we didn't if we yeah. didn't suck out 50 million native fish through our irrigation and offtake pumps every year. Yeah. And we had, you know, I don't know what the combined um, kilometres would be of recovered breeding if we repaired thermal pollution. But in my river alone, 160 kilometres of, of more fish breeding in their natural environment times by all the impoundments that have thermal pollution like you're talking about recovering thousands of kilometers of breeding habitat of fish yeah um and then you made it so that those fish in the in the stronghold populations like we talked about could recover your areas where you haven't had fish for 10 20 30 years like the the they they call it a concrete cholesterol problem that what the that's what the murray darling basin has its arteries are blocked reese um, the concrete is stopping the blood from flowing in the Murray-Darling Basin because of fish passage. Yeah. And if you combine it with those other complementary measures, um, you know, like thermal pollution and, and um, fish screening and stopping fish going up the pipes, then it, it would be a powerful remedy, mate, and, and one I'd love to see. Yes, 100%. And, and you've pretty well summed it up that well. Like 50, What well, was it, 50, the number that people need to take away from this is 50 million fish get taken out through the pumps estimated mate it's yeah it's tens and tens and tens of millions of fish mate and like i've got Mm. mates who who you know observe irrigation all the time and they tell you mate when i stop the pump and i go down there and and take an enviro net that you'd land me to cod with and fill it with native fish and take them back down to the river just from one pumping event, yeah. and they let the fish go, and then you times that across fifty years of doing it, Reese. Mm. How many you fish? How many shrimp? Think, do you? How you many eggs? Think. How many larvae? How how much damage have we done? Yeah, you just don't. Yeah, 
It hurts, doesn't it? Oh. Only way's up, mate. Only yeah, way is up. Right. That's right. And one one more thing I want to talk about, just with that cold water pollution experience that I had, is I fished. Just thought I'd mention it now. You've, there's, there's a system here. The water comes out of Cancoban into the Upper Murray. Um, yep. To the Murray River above Hume, there's a lot of cod through there, and I experienced myself. That system is that hard to fish because of the releases from the impoundment. I was there on a day we had the most incredible session. We got like five or six hits for a morning in like two hours. We were catching fish, and instantly the we couldn't catch them. And the rest of the day, like another ten hours, not a touch, wow. not a single touch. The water rose by forty centimeters, and the the temperature dropped four degrees in about a ten minute period with a yep. flush of water that come down. So, that's just one example of what I was getting at. It completely, and it wasn't breeding time, but it completely shut the fish down physically to be like just an ice bath, just hitting them that hard, uh, fully switched off. And that happens, happens through that system every week. Well, not every week, but, you know, every couple of weeks or, you know, the whole year. year that decade. goes on all the time, and that's just one system. So. Yep. It does, mate. And it, you can't recover that sort of damage through stocked fish. Like 60 cents a fish, a dollar a fish, their growth rates are slower. And, you know, look, we're going to do some restocking. We've done a lot of restocking. But the, the thing is with restocking is you have to keep it, keep keep the, keep the ratios in mind. So a massive, massive restocking event might be 50 or 60,000 fingerlings. You know, that's, that's yep. a lot of, lot of fish. Yeah, one female Murray cod in its prime can lay that whole restocking event <laughs> on its on its own. That's one fish race. So all the eggs, the harvesting, the funding, the hatchery, the freight, the volunteer hours can be done all, by one fish if it has habitat and a healthy yep. environment to do it. Restocking mm-hmm. is like trying to repopulate a town with IVF. It, yeah. It's just—it's not practical, mate. Uh, fish yeah. need to do it on their own. It's yeah. more cost-effective, and that's when you know that food pyramid is is working holistically. Re- restocking's a band-aid solution, mate. It is not yeah. the answer to healthy Australian fisheries. And that's why I wanted you to explain those other key things. And then you know how people say, you know, however many percent of the fish survive from restocking. Say, do you know what percent it is? Say it's. A oh, small it's bugger number. all, mate. Probably 10, yeah. 15. Yeah, so say that, that people go, oh, you know, 10% only survive from what we put in. Men, most people think the other 90% get eaten, but a lot of them get sucked out through pumps. A lot and of no them one get talks sucked about out this. through pumps. Yep, you're right, mate. A lot of them will die because the, um, the, the there's no tucker in the water because the water quality is absolutely crap. Yep. So you there's... Know? They'll be eaten by pest species, you know, they don't have anywhere to live, breed, shelter, the habitat's gone, de-snagging, thermal pollution, their growth rate sucks so much that they're just this dwarf fish that gets picked off by a predator. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just eaten, mate, it's it's mostly they roll because they're not in a healthy environment. That's right. One other thing, actually, that I've, I've I've mentioned this before. Have you heard Have you heard of the hybrid cross from trout cod to Murray cod? You heard of the hybrid species? Oh, uh, I've I've heard of it. I've, yeah, yeah, jury's out. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you got trout cod, you got Murray cod, right? Yep. We're seeing in our system here in the Bidgee a lot of hybrids. So they're a hybrid, um, and there's people who say there's no such thing, and there's whatever. There's a lot of skepticism, and whatever, but they're not. We I've been around that many. I've talked 
we've talked to fisheries and yeah there's these hot they're crossbred fish and we they're never seen there's studies shown that they they rarely were seen right back a long time ago and we're seeing stacks of them. even in my gen, my time fishing you didn't catch many now we're seeing wow. a lot of them now we're on the bidgie here now this is why and we couldn't work out why and Chris and I were talking and I think it was another podcast or we were talking at some stage and I was trying to work out why and we believe that what's happened is trout cod and murray cod live lived together and back before we changed things they didn't crossbreed because trout cod inhabit midstream structures in fast-flowing water, right? Yeah. We pulled out all the snags in the middle of the river. So, now these species share the same habitat. Therefore, they're now crossbreeding because they're laying eggs and fertilizing eggs in the same spots because that's the only structure in the whole system. Whereas back before we pulled out the snags for the boats to move up and down the river or before we just de-snagged the whole thing, those trout cod had enough habitat to not even be anywhere near the cod that way there they didn't crossbreed does that make sense yeah no no i totally look trout cod something i've been very very passionate about and look we're not in a in a position in our valley to observe let alone regular trout cod catches or yeah. or even hybridization so look i i sit and watch what you've just described with much anticipation, and, and you know me, Reese. I always fall back to um, non-anecdotal um, expert science researched opinion, and that's that's where I will base my opinions and logic from. And, and I know you're much the same, mate, as that you'll look to the science. But for us, um, the demise of trout cod, um, and I don't know if anybody out there has read Tales of the Trout Cod by Will Truman, um, but it is one of the most fascinating books on trout cod um, if if you happen to grab a copy of it um, off the net or wherever but the, the tale of the trout cod is is fascinating and we we have seen you know fish out here as a bycatch of murray cod you know up to 80 centimeters yeah. um, absolute stonking big trouties and we we were finding them at somewhat regular occurrence up here um, and they were cranky big things mate like i'd they are just so brutal, mate. Like absolutely hit a lure with yeah, with arrogance, arrogance they're like good. no other, mate. Unreal. I love them. Real, they are. What? How good would it be to see them? You know, recover across all their natural systems. But mm. mate, we'll have to to throw back to you guys on that one and and watch because sadly, you know, I've got some photos and some some footage of my wife and I and some mates. You know, rarely coming across them as a bycatch for Murray yeah. Cod, but. They've all but disappeared up here now, mate. Yeah, that's just something. That, yeah, and it's sad. And it and it was just something we kind of and I could I could be wrong, but that's just something that's another sort of result. What we think we're we're fairly sure based on what I just explained that what we think is another result of things that we've done wrong by pulling structure out and not having that habitat there for those fish that has now created them to do what they've done here yeah. and they've done it in cataract dam because they've got both trout cod and murray cod in cataract dam and they've got crossbreeds but they put trout cod in talbingo dam yep. where there's no murray cod to have a strong population as a backup um and they're mixed in with trout 
but obviously they can't crossbreed there. But yeah, it's just because obviously in, a, in an impoundment they're easily easily possibly able to crossbreed. But that's just why these hybrids are popping up now and never before. And I've noticed other anglers sort of bringing that up as well. So I just thought I'd oh, touch awesome, on that. Mate. That's so cool to think about. And yeah. we'll, we'll watch with bated breath, mate, as to, um, you know, that, that process of natural evolution, if it is happening and, and fall back to the science. But we look forward to, to hearing more from social fishing on that one. And in yeah. the same breath, we just hope that, our in-stream conditions up here um, are a bit more conducive to seeing trout cod recover and, um, mm. you know, come back in, in some numbers down the track. Yeah, so I think that brings us to the end, but there was a lot of uh, a lot of passion in that. Um, I appreciate, mate. I want to take another moment to say you do a great job. Your passion is addictive for what you care about and um, just keep doing it. So. Uh, thanks so much for the support and to the, the whole social fishing crew. Um, uh, Reese, it, it's been an absolute pleasure and great to have a yarn, mate. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, no, thank you, Matt. Um, enjoy the rest of the afternoon and I'll be talking in the future for sure. Good on you, Reese. And there we have it a powerful, powerful episode with Matt Hansen. I've been wanting to get him on for an episode for a very long time and you can tell exactly why. For that very reason of everything he talked about in that uh, interview, in that podcast episode, if it didn't touch you, you it, it should have. It, it really should have. I was sitting here and it was really hitting home to me um, at how fragile our fisheries are and the fact that there could be no fishery, like you don't even think about it and it, it probably won't happen in our lifetime, there could be no fishery, but we've, we have to be careful what we're doing. But hopefully, with all the things Matt was talking about, we will be on the way up and looking forward and if we can set the footprint for our future generations, we will be able to make a difference. Now, I know we love fishing, we love going out, catching fish, we spend so much time researching how to catch fish, that's what I do. I, that's what this podcast is here designed to do is to help you guys catch fish. But there's also other important things that we need to bring light to and need to think about and we need to do something about so that that will be there for the future. And and one way we do it, we pay, you know, we pay our fisheries fees, we pay our license fees and that, that helps fishers. That's something we've got to do. But there's bigger things we can do. Those four key things Matt talked about, um, some of them are massive and they're out of a single person's hands. But as a collective and as a group, we can move forward, we can get messages out there and we can make a difference. So if you guys want to do something, you want to do something as the foot groundwork, the groundwork, you want to do something small in your community, in your local waterway, check out Ozfish. So go to ozfish.org.au, jump on the Ozfish website, check out, check it out, send them a message and they're there to help. They will help you do those things that Matt wanted to do back 10 years ago when he had that money. Things like planting plants along a riverbank. It makes so much difference. Go check out your local river. When you go fish it next, just have a look and have a look at that riparian vegetation. See if there's anything along the banks. See if there's trees or if it's just a barren, open, dry bank. And that is a big contributor to a healthy system. As Matt said, there's so many reasons. Not only the food source, like he said, but also erosion, um, which then reduces your water quality. And you, you heard me talk to Matt about how poor water quality just changed how the fish fed and how they behaved on that section of the Murrumbidgee over the last few years. Whereas when it's clearer, you've got weed beds through that area. There's actual thick weed beds through that area, which then draws in shrimp, brings in more food, makes your fish and your system so much healthier. 
it's like he said, it's, and I know this episode went for quite some time and I'm still continuing to talk, but if you're still listening now, you obviously care. You obviously w- want to make a difference. And it's just crazy to think about what the fisheries were back in the day. Like, yeah, just it's just crazy what they would have been like. And um, I'm, I'm fingers crossed, fingers crossed we can get somewhere back towards near there, at least even a little bit, 25%, 50%, like Matt said, back towards what they used to be. It would be incredibly different to what we see today. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode and if it hit home to you, please share it. Please get the message out there. Grab it from whatever podcast app you're listening on and share it on your Facebook page, your wall, your Instagram story. Email it. Email it to a friend. Email it to your email list and say, Everyone, get on this and listen to it. Now, I don't know where you're listening to this, but you could be on Apple Podcasts, you could be on Spotify, you could be on the Social Fishing website. Um, There's a few other places that is available, Podbean, Stitcher, apps. Share them from those apps. Share them to friends. Get this message out there and just it's easy enough to listen to this episode while you're driving in a car or anywhere. So people who even don't listen to podcasts, get them to listen to this and share the message it needs to get out there and that's just one way in which we can help is to try and get that message out there through this podcast. So guys, if you enjoyed it, please share it around and please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Matt Hansen for sitting down for the interview but that's just the minor part of it. I want to thank him for the work he has done and there's, I know there's a lot more behind the scenes and I know Matt will have thought it as well. There's so many people that have done this with him, especially with the IWRA. So I want to thank all of them as well. So when I'm talking about thanking Matt, I'm also referring to all of those great people. The effort that they put in to restock that Macquarie River system, uh, the competition that they run to raise so much money and we need more of that around the whole country. And if you guys are thinking well, maybe we need more fishing competitions like this spread out, you know, through New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, shout out to me or give a shout out to Ozfish and see if they can help with something like that to raise money for certain areas. There's some great people in Ozfish and they are there to help. That brings me to the end of the episode, guys. It was a sad note, but also positive note. So you can take positives out of, you know, what some of that was, was negative. So anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Once again, before I finish up, don't forget we have our live Q&A with Jacko Davis on the 25th of this month. So the 25th of this month, the live Q&A, I cannot wait. It's going to be a cracker of a night. They're really, really enjoyable. Get your snacks, get a drink, sit down, get your questions ready, bring it up on the computer, the TV, on your phone and shoot through your questions and it's going to be a cracker of a night. Just two blokes talking about fishing, answering your questions and helping you guys get out there and catch fish. And like I said, if you're listening to this podcast at a later date, uh, once this live Q&A has been and gone. It will be recorded and it will be available uh, to watch whenever you want as a replay along with all of the other monthly live Q&As and they are inside the SF membership. It's just one minor part of all of the content in the SF membership. We are here to help you guys catch fish. We're creating content that teaches you guys how to catch fish. It's not like a fishing show where it just shows you fish caught over and over and over again. We want to help you guys get out there and catch fish and that is the whole point of what we are doing and it's all available inside the SF membership and you can learn more at socialfishing.com.au. That's it from me, guys. Once again, thank you very much. My name is Reese Creed and you have been listening to the Social Fishing Podcast.